everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of Breshit will focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. It's not too late to register for yearly classes. Check out the Matan website for all relevant information. This week's episode has been dedicated by Barbie Dannon in honor of Sheva Weissman, her soulful and knowledgeable Torah teacher. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor of memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. Before moving into today's conversation, I wanted to spend a few moments speaking about family in the book of Breshit and essentially explain why this theme has been chosen for these conversations. If you think about it, it's kind of odd that the Torah begins with an entire book not only devoid of laws, but a book that highlights families. In fact, many commentators wonder about this, but they focus on the lack of laws or the choice to open with the world's creation, and less on the family imperative. Taking this a step further, not only do most chapters in Breshit focus on family, but they focus on troubled family dynamics. And the question is why? It will be one thing to introduce us to the family of Avraham and his descendants, but the Torah goes far beyond formal introduction and delves deep into the prominent figures of these families. We don't focus only on their virtues and divine revelations, but seem to dwell on the complex windings of these families. The most poignant exploration of this question I've ever come across is offered in Rabbi Sachs' introduction in his Breshit volume of Covenant and Conversation. He says the following, Not by accident is Genesis a book about the family. The family is where we learn emotional and spiritual intelligence. There is nothing simple or idealized about the families of Avraham and Sarah. Only much later in Tanakh do we discover that the family will turn out to contain the most compelling metaphors for the relationship between human beings and God himself. He is our father, we are his children. He is our husband, we are his betrothed. The tensions within the patriarchal family are symptomatic of Israel's later, larger battles with God, with humanity, and with itself. To paraphrase Rabbi Sachs, we meet our families before we develop a religious relationship with God. How we mature and meet the world through our early family lives pave the way for our other relationships, including our relationship with God. Ultimately, how we perceive parents and siblings will impact how we view God, so often described through these metaphors. Do we feel distant from our Father? Will that impact how close one will feel with God when they say the words of Inam Elkenu? Perhaps. Rabbi Sachs continues, There is another significance to the focus of Genesis on the family. Unlike the God of the philosophers, the God of Abraham is a personal God. He is a God who relates to us as persons, sensing our suffering, hearing our prayers, a presence in our lives. And it is in personal relationships, first and foremost within the family, that he expects us to honor him by honoring others, who bear his image no less than we do. Again, to paraphrase, God is a personal God who appears to the patriarchs on their travels, who helps barren women. He isn't a cold lawgiver. He's deep in there in the daily struggles of these individuals. And lastly, Rabbi Sachs explains that by placing the stories of Genesis before the book of Exodus, with its story of the birth of the Israelites as a nation, the Torah is implicitly telling us of the primacy of the personal over the political. If we cannot create peace or justice or compassion within the family, we will be unable to do so within the nation, or in the world. 
That last piece, by the way, which we will transition more into when we get into Shmot, is one that I think has broader significance for us as a nation. I think it has political significance. And I'll leave it in Rabbi Sachs's poignant words for now. But again, I encourage anyone to go and look at his introduction. What I've brought here is sort of a, a shortened version of what he has there. To bring one more idea before we get into our conversation today, Professor Leon Cass, who we had a whole episode about uh, in Parshat Pekudei, offers another beautiful frame for this book. He writes in his commentary, The Beginning of Wisdom, and here I quote, After the first 11 chapters expose some of the enduring psychic and social obstacles to decent and righteous living, the rest of Genesis presents beginning efforts to overcome these obstacles in the lives of the Israelite founders, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their families. These national beginnings are fraught with difficulties and success is hard to come by. Yet remarkably, a new human way of acting and standing in the world is established and transmitted for several generations through the education of the patriarchs, an education in which we readers may vicariously and reflectively participate. The role of the Israelite patriarchs and matriarchs is to begin sublimating these human tendencies into a higher moral lifestyle. This morality is destined to revolutionize the entire world. The first 11 chapters, often called the primeval history in the book of Reshit, present us with our basic human struggles, with the morality, with an inability to listen, with an inability to stick to boundaries in this world. And the chapters that come after, where we learn about our patriarchs and matriarchs, are sort of the beginning effort to try and show us how we can do all of that in a better, more elevated way, and using our higher selves. Parshat Breshit opens with the creation of the world, famously told in multiple ways in the Parsha's first two chapters. After this, we come across the story of Adam and Chava's sin, Cain's murder of his brother Hevel, modeled in many ways after the story of sin that comes prior. The Parsha seamlessly rolls into genealogies of Cain and then Shait, who eventually births Avraham, and these Passages are often overlooked texts which tell us so much more than who birthed who, and the Parsha closes with the enigmatic unions of the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, coupling with the daughters of man, what seems to be a prologue to the story of the flood, demonstrating the kind of boundary overstep in immoral behavior that leads to God's regret that he ever made man to begin with and thus decides to destroy them. Today I have the pleasure of opening our Brashid podcast with returning guest, Rachel Weber Leshaw. Rachel teaches Talmud and Jewish law at Midrash at Lindemaum and functions as the Yotz HaLacha. Rachel, well, I didn't say it, most importantly, she's also now my chavruta. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great to have you back here. It's great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to start this whole cycle with you. Yeah. So let, let's jump right in after I sort of gave that long and windy introduction to, to take us into, in Parsha Breshit, where you want to focus to speak about family. So conveniently, you mentioned Leon Cass's introduction to Breshit, where he says the story of families in Breshit begin 11 chapters in. The question for our podcast is, is there family to talk about here? We could talk about a brother who murders his brother. But even before that, let's start with the most foundational question, which is, where does a family start? And does God create the world with a plan for couplehood, with a plan for marriage before children? And this question um, actually is the basis of a debate amongst the medieval commentators. As you mentioned, the story of the creation of the world is told at least twice. 
in Parshat Breshit, in, in Parak Bet, where the story of the creation of woman um, is told in a more complex way, where she's created from the rib of man, um, there's a really beautiful pasuk, which I'm going to read. Yeah, please. Vayomer ha'adam, zot ha'pa'am, etzem me'atzamai, uvasar mibsari, lezot yikare isha, kimeish lukacha zot. The man said, this time a bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh, um, she will be called woman because she was taken from man. And then here's the real emphasis for us. And because of this, or for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother um, and cleave to his wife, and they shall be as one flesh. I guess I'll ask you first, when you read that pasuk, what, what do you understand it to be saying? Okay, but I'm going to take one of the opinions of the of the medieval Parsha name. So great. Let's yeah. be Chavruto. You can choose whoever you want to be. My clear intuition is a sexual relationship. That That's definitely where I'm, I'm heading at. I will also say, just from the literary perspective, which is that I love that the first expression of a sort of love or this discovery that I now have a partner is the first poetic verse of the whole Torah. Yeah, it's, it's a sonnet, basically. Mm-hmm. It's our, it's the sonnet. It's this, I cannot believe this is actually happening to me. So I always love that. And you know, it's not only in Shira Shirim that we have these like beautiful love pronouncements. It really starts in Saver Beishid. But yeah, I totally go towards the explanation of why we sort of change our alliances from our our family of origin, and and totally think that it's speaking clearly to uh, the uh, the intimacy that a couple shares. And I think that that also is the first read, which of course makes it interesting that Rashi, the most famous of the medieval commentaries, um, takes this pasuk in a different direction. And he says that what the pasuk is referring to is v'hayu levasar echad, man and woman come together and they are as one flesh through the creation of a child who is the combination of the two of them from whatever genetic perspective you know Rashi would have would have known at the time. He immediately wants to understand that the whole foundation for couplehood, the reason for its existence, is for the creation of children. And he skips over basically any inherent value in in the relationship itself, focusing really on relationships as creating families and creating uh, generational continuity, which of course, if you know Rashi and his sort of goals of helping Jews continue to exist in hard times, it's not so surprising that he's very encouraging of, come on people, let's make Jewish babies. Um, but it is interesting because as you said, it's not clear that be as one flesh must be literally creating children. Your explanation of Rashi is making me think of two things. One is that in the world we live in today, we see a distinction between the intimacy of a couple, and I, I mean just the closeness, the closeness of a couple, and and they're creating children. It's That's sort of parlance in the modern world today. It would be very unusual, meaning if we're going to see any of the commentators in medieval times who see a value in the relationship itself, that should catch our eye probably more than Rashi, meaning Rashi is sort of a more... 
uh, commonplace view during those times. But I also want to separate one reading this verse as describing a sexual relationship versus in emotional intimacy. Because we will see a commentator who speaks about emotional intimacy. And I think it should be noticed that that's so unusual because it's two different things. Meaning I think that everybody living in, in the world since the beginning of time is aware of the sexual relationship, but valuing the closeness as an emotional relationship is already something different. But as you said, Rashi, he doesn't pick up on either of those. Right. And if you think about it, of course, in the context of Breshit, um, Adam and Chava have their own story, in a sense, a story of sin. But we immediately move on to the next generation. And then, as you said, the end of Parshat Breshit is really the genealogical fast forward section where we move through generation to generation, the begots, as they right, the begats, as they call them sometimes. You're asking the wrong person. I, my grammar disappeared 14 years ago when in I moved any, to this country. Yeah. In any event, it's not surprising that Rashi views the creation of man and woman as part of the larger goal of creation and continuity that's being told in Parshat Breshit. What makes it so interesting then is the Ramban's critique of yeah. Rashi. The Ramban's critique of Rashi is not from the direction you and I spoke about, you know, maybe people have relationships, but rather he says, what's so special about having kids? Animals have kids. All sorts of creations have children. There must be something essentially human about what's going on here. And then he says, only humans develop a relationship with a life partner that is an emotionally tied up relationship. He describes it as saying, um, a man finds a woman, a man finds a woman who he desires to be with her always. And then he says about, again, about men, that men, it is in their nature to feel close to their wives, leave their father and mother, and see their wives as if they were of one flesh together, not necessarily from a sexual perspective, but from an emotional and life-building perspective. The Ramban is incredibly insightful in pointing out that what humans have that makes us special is that men and women find life partners who they become committed to and are willing to build new lives with, are willing to set out from what's familiar and build something new because they found someone who they feel so close to that it is as if they were of one flesh, not the child they might one day create, but the couple unit itself. Yeah, as I said before, I think that the Ramban's approach here is very unique. And I'll also add that the Ramban in a different place, uh, right before this passage, comments that it was important that man, at least in the second version, feel that he was alone, right? Lotov Because it's important that somebody feel lonely so that then they realize what they're missing, meaning that it's important that the relationship come to fill an emotional need in somebody. So all, all throughout these passages, the Ramban really has, I, I think, a very emotionally insightful commentary to make. I'm not saying, God forbid, that Rashi is not emotionally insightful. It's just not the point that he's picking up at all in this place here. I do appreciate Rashi's perspective because, as we said before, I, I don't think it's the go-to uh, way to think about these passages. Also, we're not speaking about children yet. Like They, they come in <laughs> in the next passage. 
So I think that those are two really important perspectives and they really underscore this question. Rashi's looking at couplehood for procreation and the Ramban is saying, no, there is an intimacy that is independent from the act of procreation. And it's just fascinating to think that from the Ramban's perspective, that means that was in the blueprints all along, right? That means that it was in the plans, that there was a goal that people would develop emotional sensitivity, emotional dependence on each other. And I think, of course, the Ramban knows that the commandment to procreate and fill the world is about to come next. But the Ramban is saying, let's first establish a relationship. And, you know, we can talk about what that relationship looks like between man and woman in Breshit. But the Ramban says, let's establish the relationship, that emotional closeness. And then step two is going to be creating the family. But as we know, families are most successful when built on committed relationships. As we mentioned earlier, this um, pasuk shows up in actually the second version of the creation of woman. As Yosefa said, in the second version of creation of woman, man exists in a beautiful Edenic existence, realizes he's lonely, and God creates woman from his rib. In the first version of creation, though, um, that's not how it happens. In the version that we all know and love where man is created on the sixth day, um, man and woman are created together. Um, Man and woman created simultaneously, entering the world together as equals with the same role in this garden that they find themselves in. And these two versions of the creation of woman really raise two potential ways of approaching the relationship between man and woman as established in these stories. And I'll also just say specifically what that mission is in the first chapter. It's the 28th verse. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and, and subdue it. Uh, you have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that creeps upon the earth. That leadership role of being the top of the totem pole, the top of the hierarchy, and being those who are supposed to also care for all the creatures in the world, that mission is given to both man and woman. And I think that that's a, a really important opening to humankind, is that man and woman have, they share a role in this world. And then in the second telling, woman is described as being an Ezer Kenegdo, a helper opposite to him or a helper to him. Of course, that phrase can be interpreted in many different ways, but it certainly describes a very different relationship between man and woman, where man existed first and the woman comes to fill a need that he couldn't fill on his own, that one person wasn't enough, whether he needed assistance or whether he needed company. The woman certainly shows up. I hesitate. I hesitate to say in a subservient role, but one she's could make that claim. She's secondary. It's secondary. funny because I, I've so often taught these passages, and 
very often I'm, I'm met with resistance, meaning women themselves, again, have been taught for many years in all different ways, really don't look at, meaning I sort of preempt the more feminist aggression, let's say, at, at the second chapter. And I'll very often find women who I teach, they, they don't look at it like that. They don't, they don't even find it minorly offensive to them. So obviously we're speaking about different people, different populations, different sensitivities, but I think we would be undermining the basic premise of the second chapter of Rashid if we didn't see that woman is, she comes to be somewhat secondary, meaning she comes to fill a particular need, or I would even say it differently, is that while man comes into the world not directly involved in a relationship, woman is brought into the world to be part of a relationship. And obviously that could be used to describe very real patterns we see in the world of women who are more relational. And these are things that we also know biologically or, you know, women are more relational. They see the other doesn't mean that men don't, God forbid, but we're speaking here in broad general terms. Uh, and so I think that if we wouldn't look at it, at least in that prism for a moment, we would be ignoring the basic premise of, of the second chapter. And of course, we would also be confused by the continuation of Sefer Breshit. We'll come back to this in a little bit, but all of the women who show up in Sefer Breshit are there because of their relationship to men, their often complicated relationship to their husband, who maybe they share with another woman, meaning if all we heard was men and women created equal, then when we looked at the world, whether the world we currently live in or the world as described in Sefer Breshit, it would be unfamiliar to us. And in fact, on that note, one of those women, and I'm sure you'll talk about this when you get to it later, but later on in Sefer Breshit, Rachel cries to her husband Yaakov because she cannot have any children. Um, and she says, it is, I would rather die than, than not have children. And Yaakov gets angry at her. Her husband is angry. And the question is, why? Isn't it so understandable to a woman who all she wants is children, right, to, to lash out? Um, and Nechama Leibowitz would frequently quote the Akedah Yitzchak, Rav Yitzchak Arama, in his commentary on this passage, um, this passage that really is a commentary on Parshat Breshit, but he happened to write it um, in the story there. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read it. Please. This is the commentary of the Akedah Yitzchak. He writes as follows. Originally, Adam had called Chava Isha, emphasizing her parity with man, i.e. Ish. After the episode with the Tree of Knowledge, he called her Chava, emphasizing the female element within her and the fact that she was the mother of all subsequent human beings. Between these two names, the two functions of women are defined. On the one hand, as the Eshet Chayel, woman of valor, she possesses all the ingredients that can raise her to the status of prophetess. On the other hand, her function is to become a mother. A woman who fails to give birth, just like a man who is sterile, has not forfeited her major function in life. We hold the view that man's major function is the performance of good deeds, something quite independent of procreation. If Yaakov had been angry at Rachel for demanding children, else her life would not be worth living, it was precisely for this reason. Writing in the Middle Ages in Spain, Rav Yitzchak Arama touches on... Um, a, a pretty modern notion, which is this idea of woman as mother is only one aspect of the story of woman. And before we meet woman as mother, Chava Em Kolchai, we first meet Isha, the woman created in parallel with man with all the strengths and all the goals and all the potential. 
And he says that Rachel was unable to find any meaning in her life outside of having children. And this, for this, she was criticized. It's a personally hard case to imagine, right? Criticizing a woman who's who's feeling vulnerable. But on the other hand, this idea that we as women sometimes um, find ourselves focused on one role or the other, um, and, and that balance is hard, but both sides exist already from the very beginning of the stories in Breshit. We'll also add that obviously for Necham Leibovitz, this is a particularly poignant passage as she herself didn't have children uh, I think, yeah, I think in general, the question about uh, infertility and the reactions to that is definitely going to feature in, in at least some of the episodes that will, that will be coming. I think that while this is part of the broader question of what is the relationship between the first and second chapter of, of Sefer Breshit, I best like to look at these two presentations of women as parallel uh, to each other, similar in the way, obviously, the Akedat Yitzhak is looking at it. Uh, I think that the joint mission with uh, with Adam is something that is critical for us to notice. And I think that noticing ourselves, man and woman, how we are and exist in relation to another, uh, I would say that Adam is presented as being uh, very dependent on woman, and woman is presented as having sort of come into the world with a particular focus, but we see immediately in the next chapter that she is far more independent than man is. So the the approach of the nachash, of the snake to her in the third chapter, shows us that she may have come into the world secondary but that that's not. But she's prominent, meaning she she came in as an Ezer Kenegdo, but she has a prominence, and perhaps that is why he approaches her. There are a number of reasons why he might have approached her, but perhaps that's why he approaches her, and that she has significant swaying power over over her husband. So I think that the first and second chapters need to be looked at in tandem, and so does the second and and third chapter, so that we sort of get this fuller picture of what this prototype woman looks like. Of course, what's funny here is that we're taking two characters who are clearly archetypes for humanity, but who are also characters in and of themselves who do things. And of course, there's only so much that you can claim that a person's behavior, you know, is is an archetype for all of, you know, that person's gender's behavior in the future. And of course, that's what's so interesting about Parshat Breshit, right? That we start from this very, like, orderly, descriptive, you know, this is water, this is sky, this is grass. And we slowly bring people who are complicated into the story. And if anything, I think we see that the beginning of the relationship between men and women is a messy one, right? Created out of need, created with huge potential, potential for emotional closeness, potential for procreation, um, but also potential for misunderstanding and confusion and blame and miscommunication and sort of everything that's ever gone wrong in a person's relationship with anybody else. Adam and Chava pretty quickly get there, right? Even relationships not between husbands and wives. We just start to see how messy human beings can be, right? By the end of Breshid, God's like, why did I even bring bring this world into existence? People just keep messing up. It makes it sound depressing, but I actually think it's wonderful. Meaning we don't start Sefer Breshid with a 
perfect world. We start with a messy world and then try to figure out how can people get better or get worse and the world can be destroyed and then we can try again. But that's it's built into the system that we are messy and I love that. You know, as you're speaking, it's, I'm thinking about that the this perfected image of Vihula Vasar Chad is very much like, I think it's in Rav Knoll's book, Ishvi Isha, uh, where he speaks about Hilchonida and general perspectives on, on marriage. But he says that when you look at a couple underneath the chupa, you're looking at the best potential that a marriage has to offer. Again, the potential of it. Everyone's dressed beautifully, they're on their best behavior, utterly excited. And you're looking there at a moment in time. Most moments won't look like the wedding canopy. That is not the way most of our lives will function, but that it's a moment in time that hopefully in a positive, loving relationship, couples will experience that kind of closeness and excitement together uh, throughout their life. Um, but this and this passage of Yulav Asarachad, if we look at it from the Ramban, the sort of emotional intimacy uh, way of looking at it, that that also is something that in the messiness that is life, in the combination of man and woman in Perak Aleph, man and woman in Perak Bed, and man and woman in, in Perak Gimel, that you know, we should strive and aspire to have these moments of being able to fully see each other while also knowing that much of the time we'll miss the mark. And that's okay, because so did Adam and Chava. I want to just emphasize something that Leon Cass also emphasizes in uh, in another part of his introduction. And honestly, there are many roots to this in Chazal as well. But we're we're calling Adam and Chava archetypes, which that may sound different or abrasive or perfectly logical, to, depending on, on who's listening. But I just want to say that the first 11 chapters I mentioned in the introduction, what's called the primeval history in the fancy academic terms, that these first 11 chapters are very different than what comes after. Because in the 12th chapter, that's when we have Abraham and we switch over our lens into one family, Israelite, uh, Abrahamic, and it becomes focused on, on on a goal of getting this family established, worshiping God, and, and going down a very particular religious path. But up until that point, we have these stories that are nothing less than universal. And they're supposed to be understood as universal. And so when we speak about Adam and Chava as archetypes, I, I believe that, that that is how they're supposed to be understood. Meaning they're not supposed to be archetypes of Jews. They're archetypes of humans. And so I just wanted to explain that for anyone who's sort of maybe feeling that there's sort of like a gap between what we're saying and 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 sort of the rest of, of Sefer Breshit. And it's not connected to the point about true or not true. It's connected to the point about truth, meaning this is the way that relationships function. This is the way that the world functions, that that creations behave, that that people behave with their siblings. And so that point, I think, can't be emphasized enough because it really is the foundational point of the first 11 chapters of Sefer Vashit. And in a way, those chapters set us up for raised eyebrows at certain points throughout the rest of the Sefer, meaning as soon as Avraham introduces a second wife into his family, if you've been reading the, the text carefully, you should know that there's going to be conflict. Why? 
because we were set up with a one-on-one relationship and now we're adding a third party. Um, And so right, wrong, we know there's going to be complexity here and and that's the continuation of their story. God needing to tell Avraham, no, Sarah is the wife from whom your family is going to continue. And, and it continues with, you know, Yitzchak and Rivka, who are a, a happy one-on-one, but but terrible communicators, if one can say such a thing about the Avod and Imahot. Literally in the text, Yitzchak and Rivka do not speak to each other. So it's not me who said they're terrible communicators. The Torah never bothered to share words that they spoke to each other. And again, we know that there is a problem here because of what Parsha Breshit has set us up to do. And I think we often read the book as two separate sections. And I think that's legitimate based on the way that they're written and the universal versus the particular. But let's not forget that like we are being primed for part two by part one. Yeah. I'll also even say specifically about polygamy, which is that while we have many stories where there are multiple wives, none of them go well. None. The Torah never supports polygamy. I think I'm confident in that statement, that that is not a supported family structure. It was a family structure that existed and that was common, but the Torah makes it very clear that it's not It's it's not going to set you up for, for positive family dynamics. Uh, things are complicated enough with obviously one partner and, and children of that union. <laughs> so I think that that's a really good point, which is that I'm sort of emphasizing the difference between the first 11 chapters and the rest of Sefer Breshit. But as you said, our ideal in our mind is man, woman, is intimacy, relational intimacy, and also procreation. And that that is important to keep in our mind as we also look at the relationships that come later in the book of Breshit. They're so much fun. I wish that I could come back to talk to you about every single family that you're going to get to meet with all of your guests over the course of the rest of this series. I know it's going to be lots of fun. I can't wait to listen. Thank you so much for being here. This was great. My pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.